Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes director Jeff Kaufman to discuss his film, Savoy King, Chick Webb, and the Music That Changed America. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Jeff Kaufman, the director, writer, and producer of The Savoy King, Chick Webb, and the Music That Changed America. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. It's great to be with you. Cool. And so I love this documentary. Chick Webb is absolutely central to the story of American musical history that we're telling with Let It Roll, primarily because if you just look at the people who are in his band, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Jordan, go on to be leaders in the two forks of the big split. You know, there's swing and jazz that totally dominates popular music in the 30s and 40s, and it splits off into two variants, modern jazz, which Ella Fitzgerald becomes a leader of, and rhythm and blues, which Louis Jordan becomes a leader of. So Chick Webb is this definitely in the center of the trunk of the American musical tree. Tell us about the documentary and why you made it and how you made it. Sure. But first of all, let me um, widen that tree a little bit, if you don't mind, because also um, the great Mario Bazo was in Chick's band and actually said Chick was the best band leader he ever heard of. And uh, Mario Bazo is the grandfather or the father of Afro-Cuban jazz. Um, and also uh, Dizzy Gillespie really came out of Chick's band. Uh, Dizzy says that Chick was the first person to mentor him and really give him a chance to do arrangements. And of course, Dizzy was just amazing and led the bebop. So, so much comes out of Chick's, Chick's work. Um, and uh, to answer your question, <clears throat> yeah, I've always been interested in the way sometimes unsung people are the center of change. You know, I think that's a fascinating in whatever field. But um, there was this period of time where I just couldn't stand the news any longer. And I often listen to classical music, but I started to listen to jazz, and I fell in love with Charlie uh, Christian, you know, Charlie Christian, the great uh, guitarist uh, with Benny Goodman. And I read this biography of Benny Goodman. Uh, it was like a 300-page biography of Benny Goodman, and there was like – a very short paragraph about Chick Webb that uh, Benny Goodman went up to Harlem uh, in a battle of the bands, and Chick Webb, a hunchback dwarf with spinal tuberculosis, his band beat Benny's. I thought, what? Who's that guy? Uh, and I, so I started looking around for you know stuff about Chick, and there was hardly anything. Um, and it's just weird the way great lives get erased by history. Um, so I don't know. At some point, I was working on. Uh, I was working for this company that does the show Cops and <laughs> flying all around the country, and I just said, I'm, I'll make a documentary. I raised a little money, not much, and uh, oftentimes I'd go shoot something, and then I'd take a day off with uh, the company equipment. They gave me permission, and I would shoot 
interviews and pieces and piece by piece by piece we we built the film yeah and you used uh you got quite a uh, all-star cast of celebrity voices to do the voiceovers how did you decide to do that and how did you make those hookups well, I think the first thing I really wanted to do was I didn't want to have a documentary with talking heads, with scholars talking about, you know, the influence of Chick Webb. I thought that would be, you know, three people removed and kind of cold. I wanted to do something that was as immersive and you are there as possible. So for one thing, we had this great partner with the Harlem Arts Alliance, uh, Vosa Rivers. Uh, they also they do so many great work uh, things in, in, in Harlem culture. And they became lifelong friends, uh, but they helped me uh, find some people who were well-known and, and some people who were sort of unsung who um, had direct connections uh, with Chick and Ella and Duke and, you know, and Count Basie. Just, uh, you know, I was so lucky. Um, and also I had some other uh, connections as well. So the concept of the film is really um, you're going to be there with these people, not you're going to be told what it was like. Um, and once um, I started, so I started a doing interviews with people who were in their 80s and 90s who were actually there, and then also finding quotes from the people who are no longer with us, like Ella and Duke Ellington. And once I put that together and created a script and flowed the two together, you know, I wanted to have voices bring uh, great voices bring those characters alive who we only had in text. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, it's funny because now, since then, uh, I, I got married to uh, a former casting director, and you know, she has a lot of contacts, and she's amazing, and she's actually a producer on the, on this film, but she wasn't involved at the time. Uh, but so just in my crazy way, I just started reaching out to people, and we got Janet Jackson as Ella Fitzgerald, John Legend as Duke Ellington. Uh, John told me that was the first voiceover he'd ever done, and it was before he'd done the acting. Um, Andy Garcia as Mario Baza, Jeff Goldblum as Artie Shaw. You know, just, uh, it was just uh, very exciting. And, and also, yeah. it was just wonderful to have you know, a, a voice in print all of a sudden come alive like that. Yeah, it really it really brought the movie to life and it had enormous power to me. But let's start talking about our subject, William sure. Henry Chick Webb, born around 1909 in Baltimore. Tell us about his childhood and a pivotal event in his childhood that shaped the rest of his life. Yeah, and and again, you know, when I went down there to film and kind of found his old neighborhood, found the corner, the street corner that he used to sell newspapers at. Um, his house seemed to be gone, but it was strange. John Hopkins was ripping down all these neighborhoods to to expand the hospital and the complex around the hospital, and so the streets that Chick Webb grew up on were all kind of boarded up. It was like an old western ghost town, but it was in Baltimore, uh, and so you could see the kind of steps that Chick lived on and the and the kind of buildings he was in, and they're all gone now. It's very haunting. It's sort of like a metaphor for history. <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh, Chick uh, was a kid. He had a couple of brothers and sisters. Uh, his dad disappeared. His mother was raising him. She was very uh, religious, uh, a good woman. And one day he, I think, heard his grandmother uh, um, coming home. And he ran down the stairs, tripped and fell, rolled down the stairs and broke his back. He was just a little kid. Um, and um, the doctor you know, thought that he might never walk again, but he had a lot of resilience. Um, and uh, and it led to him having spinal tuberculosis uh, and becoming what they called at that time, you know, a hunchback dwarf. He, he never grew more than, I don't know, about four feet. Um, and, uh, you know, once he, once he became a little more mobile, uh, the doctor wanted to build up his upper body strength, make him as strong as possible. And he recommended he play the drums. They couldn't afford drums, so he got just a couple sticks off the street, and he would practice drumming on garbage can lids, uh, you know, and things like that. Uh, and that's what really changed his life. It's one of those strange things that it happens over and over again, where terrible adversity leads to greatness. Yeah, and that's absolutely the theme of the story. And let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is Chick Webber's orchestra, Stomping at the Savoy.
was Chick Webb and his orchestra stomping at the Savoy. So now tell us, how did he get started as a musician and how did he make his way to New York? Sure. Can I just do a shout out to Edgar Sampson who wrote that song? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, my hope is that the film and this conversation just gets people to say, oh, I'll find out more about that guy. And Edgar Sampson was one of the great composers, arrangers uh, uh, in American history, wrote a lot of great songs, um, and including Stomp of the Savoy, which lives on. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> sorry about the so, digression. Not at all. Not at all. I, I just want you to take a take Chick and us from Baltimore to New York. How did he get to Harlem? How did he become a musician? How did he make his way in the big city? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, his, his uh, mom didn't have much money. He was a hard uh, childhood, and uh, but he was a very ambitious guy. Some people just have that spark. And so, uh, among other things, he sold newspapers. And this is great firsthand story from Chick about how uh, he would stand on the corner, sell newspapers, and uh, he sold more newspapers than anyone else. I think he was bragging, but he said, "I could sell you know a thousand newspapers a day." Um, Eventually, he and his best friend, who he stayed uh, friends with uh, through his whole short life, uh, the uh, the um, guitarist John Truehart, started playing together, uh, starting to try to get gigs together, uh, got a job on a segregated steamship uh, because they would steam back and forth uh, outside the Baltimore Harbor and uh, play for people. Uh, blacks could uh, could um, perform, but they couldn't obviously unfortunately, uh, eat or drink or, you know, socialize on those boats. Um, and, uh, at some point their ambitions took them to New York. The, uh, Chick was 17 at the time, came to New York with John and, uh, it was tough. They got a room together. Um, uh, they barely ate sometimes. They got uh, a couple gigs here and there and they really struggled for a long time, but, uh, piece by piece by piece, Chick started proving himself as a drummer. Uh, there are again, just amazing stories as you can imagine. Here's this, you know, they would have what they called cutting contests. Uh, I love the description of these where guys would come into a jazz club and uh, guitarists, trumpeters, and they would play against each other in competition, uh, including uh, uh, drummers. And, you know, there's nothing more athletic than a, than a good drummer. And, uh, and this little four-foot four guy would come in and get behind the drums and people would laugh and guffaw, and then he would just blow them away. Um, and so he started to build his reputation. And at some point, uh, Duke Ellington came across him, and Duke had a great eye for talent. And Duke, uh, Duke sort of took him under his wing, and um, eventually that led to uh, him playing with Duke on some sessions. And then Duke, um, just to cut to the chase, uh, at one point Duke got a couple jobs at the same time. He couldn't do both, uh, and so he said to Chick, "Hey, Chick, uh, you take this job, uh, put together some guys as a band, uh, and you give me a cut, and uh, and you can and you can be the band leader." And Chick didn't want to do it, but when he found out that there was good money attached, or at least decent money, he said, "Okay." And it was Duke Ellington sort of tapping Chick's shoulder that led to Chick's career as a band leader. Yeah, that's just a great story and, and uh, a real sort of passing of the torch. And another passing of the torch figure is Jolly Roll Morton. Tell us about Chick's relationship with Jolly Roll, because it was just a great story in the movie. Uh, thank you. It's funny because, you know, we did the movie, what, 10, 12 years ago, and someone came up to me just yesterday and, and talked about that Jelly Roll Morton story. So it's it's nice that Jelly Roll lives on and so does the story. Uh, the, Jelly, the, all these guys would hang out uh, in, in, in at the jazz clubs in New York uh, and know each other, you know, these legends. Uh, and they'd all, but like in cutting contests, you know, they'd all be very competitive and trying to prove themselves. And Jelly Roll Morton fashioned himself as the as the founder of jazz. And whether that's true or not, he was certainly one of the giants of early jazz. Uh, and and, uh, and a great, uh, charismatic and arrogant character, and um, and so um, there were stories about uh, Jelly Roll and Chick standing outside uh, a, a jazz club and just doing sort of a, a passing of the torch bragging contest. You know, uh, Jelly was the was the great founder of jazz, and Chick was you know a, a brash young newcomer, and uh, they would stand in front and just insult each other back and forth, back and forth, and people would kind of gather around, figuring that there was a physical fist, fist fight, but it was just a verbal fight between those two. Um, and, and again, uh, as you said, there's all these, you know, amazing stories of passing of the torch, um, you know, one generation moving on to the next. 
Yeah, and he also sort of did apprenticeships with some of the great uh, other New Orleanians of jazz. I'm talking about Louis Armstrong and King Oliver. Tell us about how Chick worked with those guys. Well, you know, the story about King Oliver, who was, you know, before Louis was a giant of giants and so instrumental in, in, in leading it to jazz. But I think at the end of his life, he was operating an elevator in New York City, you know, kind of forgotten. His lip was blown out. Um, uh, but for uh, Louis Armstrong, who, again, you know, if you just heard the name and, and you don't know, like, the early work with Lil Hardin uh, and uh, and just his the story of his growth, uh, go listen to Louis Armstrong for four days and, and it'll wash out some of the bad stuff in modern life. Highly uh, recommend but, it. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Duke Ellington and, and any of these guys uh, and women. Um, but... Uh, yeah, at one point, Chick and his band got a job as a backup for Louis Jordan, uh, for Louis Armstrong, and they went on tour. And uh, there's a story that uh, that is told in real life by Mez Mesro, who was a, a musician for Louis Armstrong, and considered by most people not a very good musician, but he was apparently the best source of marijuana that anyone knew. So he kept getting jobs because he could always get <laughs> marijuana for his uh, for his colleagues. And um, and he wrote a memoir that served. Sort of but parts of it are true, and this part is, I think, true. Uh, we got um, the great Billy Crystal to to be Mes Mesro in the film, and uh, he was, you know, it was great to watch him work. But uh, Mes Mesro tells a story about uh, Chick drumming for Louis Armstrong, and there were it was towards the end of the tour, and Louis Armstrong's lips started to bleed, and, and Louis would there's close-up pictures of actually Louis's lips, and they were just like. They're like the Grand Canyon, you know, just rutted because he he played so hard, and he would put salve on his lip to try to keep it going. And um, and in this concert they're playing together, uh, Louis was pushing towards a high note uh, and pushing and pushing. And and he said, you know, Chick was really there and and, and leading the charge, and uh, Louis's lip was just bleeding. It started to pop out. It was bleeding, and blood was pouring down his face. And and the musicians in the band were crying. And it was Chick who sort of kept them going. And kept and kept under Louis until Louis hit that note and sustained that note. And when he put down his his when he lowered his trumpet, and you know, the blood was just pouring from his lip. Um, and uh, that's that's the kind of price those guys paid. And and that was a moment that uh, the great Chick Webb and the great Louis Armstrong shared together. Yeah, I love that story of of Chick sort of being Sir Sir Lancelot to to Louis King Arthur and helping him save the day. But let's hear our next track. This is a rocket for me with Chick Webb's orchestra featuring Ella Fitzgerald. I heard it came to town A new kind of rhythm spread around Sort of set you sizzling Now I'm all through With symphony Oh, rock it for me Every night You'll see all the nifties Plenty tight That was Chick Webb with Ella Fitzgerald doing Rock It For Me. And we'll talk about Ella in a minute, but first tell us about the Savoy Club in Harlem. Why was it so culturally important and what was Chick's role there? Sure. Can I, uh, uh, I digress one more time to say I love that Absolutely. song? Absolutely. And Alice sings that song, you know, with this, there's a in her earlier music, her earlier career with Chick, sometimes she's a little bit derided, but there's a saucy sort of sexy quality to the way she sings a lot of those songs. And I, I love her singing Rocket for Me. Isn't that a great song? Yeah, I, I, that's why I picked it. It's, it's, a, it's a humdinger. And this whole set, Chick's whole career with Ella, highly, highly recommended just the perfect, it's kind of the pinnacle of the swing era. Yeah, coming together. Um, you're asking about the Savoy Ballroom. So um, there was a guy named Mo Gale. Uh, his dad, I think, was a luggage, uh, had a luggage business. And so he came in with some money and um, and he wanted to start a jazz club uh, up in Harlem. And uh and and he he formed this. He had a couple. He had a partner or two, and and he pulled in a, a fabulous guy named Charles Buchanan. Mo Gale was a white Jewish guy, you know, not from that part of uh, the world, but had this idea of having a club that would bring people together, a ballroom. And he brought in Charles Buchanan, who was black and who uh, had some tradition in in in, in music, although 
more in management. Uh, the story is that uh, that Charles Buchanan, who was a brilliant uh, ballroom uh, club um, 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 leader, uh, also kind of hated musicians, kind of resented them. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> they started uh, the Savoy Ballroom. And what's really remarkable about the Savoy, besides the fact that it had what they, what I think Lana Turner called the track, you know, where they would dance together, land of happy feet, uh, this huge dance floor surrounded by tables and a bar and, and two, um, two, um, bandstands so that there'd be a main bandstand and a second bandstand. So when one band stopped, boom, it'd go right to the second one. And you walked up the stairs to the Savoy. Now, when I was filming, I went to the location of the Savoy ballroom and there's a crappy five and dime store where that used to be. And I saw the manager sweeping up outside and I said, you know, you know, because at that time, you know, Orson Welles went there and uh, the Nicholas brothers went there and Fred Astaire went there and, uh, you know, Judy Garland went there and just, you know, a lot of turn of just this endless uh, parade of, 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 of greats went to the uh, Savoy besides the musicians like Allenton and Chick and Basie, et cetera. And so I talked to the manager of the Five and Dime downstairs and said, do you know what was upstairs, what was on this very spot? Never heard of the Savoy Ballroom, didn't, didn't know it. But the Savoy Ballroom was the first musical venue in America, maybe in the world, where whites and blacks could dance together, could socialize together, could sit at a table together, could play together. I mean, you know, someone else said that um, we stand on their shoulders. And I think it's, I think we've, we forget where we came from and really just how recent that was. Uh, imagine, put yourself in an America where blacks and whites couldn't be on the same dance floor together. Um, and, and again, that was, you know, the Apollo, uh, any legendary, any other legendary um, uh, music venue in New York or around the country, they were segregated. And oftentimes they could have black musicians, but they couldn't mingle at all with the patrons. And they certainly couldn't be a patron themselves. Yeah. And, uh, and that's really fascinating. And we, we just had a, previous guest a, a couple of weeks ago, Dale Cockrell, who was telling us the way segregation was imposed on New York, and actually through most of the 19th century, the underground dance scene was quite integrated, but around World War One, uh, the Jim Crow edicts came down and, and segregated everything. So this is breaking down that uh, imposition of segregation, and even you know, yeah, the the famous Cotton Club. Um, but one thing that really blew me away was the capacity of this club. 4,000 people at a time. I mean, this thing is enormous. Um, yeah. It's it's really hard to wrap your head around, but if you go back, you can Google and look at photos of, of the Savoy and other dance halls and other places. I mean, in, immense floor shows. And this is before disco. There's no sound systems. I mean, there might be a, a public address system to help the singer be amplified, but there's no DJs playing records. This is the jukebox is still a pretty new invention. Radio is popular, but you can't broadcast to a whole dance floor with, you know, the tiny little radio systems they had then. So if you wanted to have dancers, you had to have live musicians. And this was the heyday of that kind of thing. Yeah. There's a story about, you know, the battle of the bands. It's a couple significant ones that Chick Webb was in. He was in many, but there's that one where he played against Benny Goodman. Benny was, you know, was the Beatles of his time, but a lot of the music that he played had originally come from black bands. And then he re perform them for wide audiences. And there's a lot to credit Benny Goodman for. He was a remarkable, if difficult, guy. Uh, and there was also this great battle of bands between Chick's band featuring Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie's band featuring Billie Holiday. Wouldn't you like to be there for that? Uh, oh, yeah. And there are stories of five or 6,000 people five or 6,000 people in the Savoy Ballroom, and then an equal number of them outside because there was no air conditioning, you know? <laughs> you know? And so you imagine on a hot summer night, they would crack open all the windows and the music would pour out onto the street. And then you'd, so like the night of the, the Benny Goodman uh, battle of bands, there was, you know, thousands more out on the street dancing and listening. And also just to say that, you know, you have oftentimes you know, a mix of people, but often poor people, working people who would come to the Savoy, they'd, you know, think about it all week long, and they would all come in, in suits and ties for guys and, you know, beautiful dresses for women. Uh, you know, it wasn't just uh, shorts and T-shirts in those days. Yeah, and, and in the movie, you also talk about the security policies of the Savoy, that they had really strict rules and that it had to be a safe place for young single women to come dance and feel comfortable and feel safe. How did they do that? 
Yeah, uh, that was told to us, uh, John, um, uh, what's his name? John Isaac, uh, Joe, let's see, um, John Isaacs was a great basketball player. Uh, and uh, he, uh, for the Harlem Wrens, and um, he was a frequent patron of the Savoy as well. And he talked about how, you know, the Savoy had, because Charles Buchanan ran a really tight ship, uh, they had these burly security guards. And there's some photographs of them, and they look pretty scary. And if there was any kind of infraction, if a guy was hassling a woman, uh, if someone got too drunk, as John would say, you know, they'd be out on the street, uh, by which he meant that he would, they would throw them down the stairs. Uh, Ouch. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that kept things regulated. Tell us a little bit more about Chick's band and his arrangers. Uh, you, you mentioned um, uh, Edgar Sampson, who they called The Lamb, um, but he also had another one, Van Alexander. Tell us about the importance of arrangers to a swing band. Why, why did the swing band need an arranger? What did an arranger do? And who were these guys? Yeah, well, you know, I, we just did a, a, a film about the theater. About uh, it's it's on uh, it was on American Masters. It's called uh, Every Act of Life about the great playwright Terence McNally. And if you think about someone like Terence, you know, who would write you know a fabulous play, but then it goes into the hands of the actor or actress, right? And so the words are just words, and they have to come alive. Uh, and uh, for for a playwright, it could be heartbreaking. You know, your words can be killed by the wrong person, or they can, or you could be a genius if Nathan Lane does your does your monologue. And it's the same thing uh, as as a musician, as a composer. Uh, it's not just, and you can listen to different versions of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and one one orchestra will just nail it, and then when it's kind of flat and plodding. So it's the arrangement, it's the spirit behind it, it's the musicians that you choose, it's what musician you assign for the lead roles. Um, and uh, Chick uh, had no musical training. He couldn't actually read music himself, but he, uh, by all uh, accounts, was a very strict band leader. He would do practice after practice after practice. Uh, Cab Calloway was the same way. Uh, Cab Calloway had, had a reputation for you know being sort of a flake, but he was actually a very disciplined band leader. Um, and uh, one of Chick's uh, great uh, arrangers and sometimes composers was a guy originally named Al Feldman, who became known as Van Alexander. Um, I had the privilege of getting to know Van and becoming friends with him for his last 10 years of his life. Uh, he died at age 100. So uh, Van's a wonderful um, part of this film, but um, you know he got to know my son. Uh, we had a lot of lunches together. Van was amazing. I mean, just as an example, there's so many people in this film, Frankie Manning, Nora Miller, the great dancers, uh, you know, Van Alexander, who were in their 80s and 90s when I knew them. And they had more life in them than a lot of 30-year-olds I know. So, you know, what you decide to do at, at a certain decade in your life uh, is in part just by the spirit you put into it. But uh, uh, just to be brief, but Van was uh, this Jewish kid from Brooklyn who uh, loved music and uh, would go up to the Savoy two, three times a week just to listen to the band. He didn't like to dance, and he would stand by the bandstand. And he got to and and after a while, Chick would see him there and get to know him. And Chick would say, "Hey, how you doing? How's it going?" And finally, I guess after a year or so, you know, Van, who was like 17 years old, still in high school, said, oh, "Mr. Webb, I've got some arrangements I've done. Can uh, I bring them to you?" And uh, Chick said. Yeah, this Friday. Come over this Friday night uh, after after the performance. Well, Van actually hadn't done them yet. <laughs> he just, you know, was throwing it <laughs> out there. So he ran home and did some arrangements, and he came back to the Savoy that Friday night. Uh, and uh, to, it's the stories in, in in the film The Savoy King. But uh, but Van didn't realize that uh, that after they finished performing, which is at about like two o'clock, then they all go out and they drink some muscatel, and they all come back, and then they go through all the original, you know, arrangers uh, work. And they didn't get to check until like four or five o'clock in the morning. And Chick's, I mean, not Chick, Van. And Van's mom thought that he'd been kidnapped or killed or something. You know, he was in Harlem where he was in danger. <laughs> and, uh, but finally they got to Van and Chick liked it and uh, gave him five bucks. But Chick was always broke. And so he had to borrow five bucks from someone else. Uh, but they hired Van as a teenager in high school. And uh, and Van was with him until he died. And he ended up co-writing his uh, most successful song, A Tisco Tasket. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll hear about Chick's recording and radio careers. 
And so Chicks armed up with uh, a great band, great arrangers, great discipline, great place to play. But to reach a mass audience, uh, he needed to record and he needed to get on radio. How did he solve those two problems? And and how big a body of work did he put to, put on record? Yeah, um, before we do that, can I just can we talk about him as a drummer for a second? Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just realized it's my fault, probably, but I, you know, it's really important to realize that, um, you know, drumming is so great. I love percussion from all over the world, um, but, and we think of drumming as so, you know, vital to so much music we know now. But uh, in in the early days of American music, drumming sort of was way in the back and just sort of kept the beat and it sort of, you know, set the beat almost like a metrodome, and that was about it. Um, Chick was the first, I, I refer to Chick as the Louis Armstrong of drums. He was the first modern drummer. He was the first one to push the drums towards the front, not uh, in an ego way, but to drive the music. And he was the first one to find emotion in drumming uh, and, and theatrics in drumming. So not only you know was his, his, his drumming thrilling to listen to and full of emotion and invention, but also he would do these theatrics, like he'd throw the sticks up in the air and catch them and stuff. And again, this little guy who, who was in physical pain almost all the time, sometimes he would finish drumming and he would go through the curtain or in the back and he'd pass out. Because uh, he was sick all the time, you know. Sometimes he would be drumming and bleeding at the same time. But this ultimate showman, um, and so he was really the person. You know, other drummers like uh, Gene Krupa or uh, Billy Rich uh, would really point to Chick and say, "That's the guy who invented modern drumming. That's the guy who inspired me." Yeah, Buddy Rich uh, definitely. And the and the story about Gene Krupa, who was playing with Benny Goodman when they challenged Chick at the Savoy, is just incredibly powerful you know benny goodman like you said was the beatles of his day and we mean that like there were literal riots of young girls screaming girls coming to see benny goodman and his band and gene krupa the drummer was just this absolute megastar at the time and you know the people that were there say when benny goodman's band started playing i mean the, the savoy just blows up just so excited to see him there but then when chick's band starts playing doesn't take them long at all to wear them down to the point that Gene Krupa lays down his drumsticks just a few songs in and taps out. Like, I, I think he says, I've, I've never had the honor of being cut by a better man, I think is what he had to say about Chick Webb. So, yeah, Gene Krupa, you know, was, was like a movie star handsome. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the Howard Hawks movie Ball of Fire with Barbara Stanwyck. It's a yeah. great movie. Uh, and there's a sequence with uh, Benny Goodman where first he plays the drums and it's fabulous. And then, uh, and then um, they get a matchbook, uh, a matchbox, and two matchsticks, wooden matchsticks. And he does drumming with the ma- wooden matchsticks on the side of the matchbox. It's a fantastic sequence, and and he was not only great, uh, and one of the first musicians, by the way, to go to prison for smoking marijuana, <laughs> but uh, yep. but also um, he was he loved Chick, and he he went to Chick's funeral. Um, you know, he was he was along with Benny Goodman, one of the first white musicians to honor and include and treat as equals black musicians. Yeah, and it's it's a beautiful moment. And Chick also had one of the first African band, African American bands to have a major radio show. Tell us about the NBC program Gems of Color and what it did for Chick and swing music. Sure. You know, in the 1950s, uh, Nat King Cole had a TV show, uh, and people, apparently a lot of people watched it. They loved Nat King Cole, but the sponsors wouldn't touch it uh, because he was black, and it got canceled relatively soon. About 10 years before that, Chick was the first African American uh, artist, you know, musician to have a national radio show. It was huge. So he went from, you know, struggling and barely getting along and barely getting along and barely getting along and, and oftentimes playing his band out of his own pocket, uh, and going back to his room and not knowing how he's going to survive. Um, and, uh, obviously it transformed things to have Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, but, um, but, he got hired by NBC to have this national radio show, and it was the first black artist to do so. And it became, uh, you know, a national hit. And um, they would they would play from different places. The Savoy sometimes they'd go to this place in Boston called Lavages and play from there. Um, and there's still some we found some recordings that are available now. You just you could find them on uh, on Google. But at the time we found them, they weren't really available. And it's just great to hear them. You know, sadly, there's the announcer announcing them, but you, you'd never hear Chick's voice 
leading into a song. Um, but uh, it's great to hear him play live. And apparently, when you when he really played live, sometimes he would do like a four minute drum solo, and that's that's all gone as well. But the importance of of having uh, a national radio show really broke down a lot of caller barriers. Later, he also was the first black artist to uh, play at a big white hotel in New York City. Um, and uh, you know, again, so many color barriers, so much racism, and uh, these things may seem small now, but they were earthquakes at the time. And he also had a, a successful recording career, although his career aligned with the Depression and the recording industry. The, the floor fell out of the bottom of the record industry around 1929. I mean, it went from selling hundreds of millions of records per year to literally just a couple million and even less in 31 and 32. But nonetheless, he recorded, I think, uh, 57 recording sessions, 220 songs. But his greatest success came when one of his um, MCs and, and singers, Bardu Ali, introduced him to kind of an urchin street girl named Ella Fitzgerald, who was only 15 and had just won uh, uh, an amateur contest at the Apollo Theater. Tell us about that, how they discovered Ella and, and how Chick interacted with Ella. Sure. You know, first of all, I'm, I'm glad you said it the way you said it, because you were absolutely right. But, you know, there's so many people who claimed that they discovered Ella Fitzgerald, um, you know, including uh, the singer who Charles Linton, who she replaced in the band. Uh, and even Duke Ellington, who we love, claimed that he discovered Ella Fitzgerald. But you're right. It was Bardu Ali, who was a really remarkable guy himself, later became Red Fox's manager um, and um uh, and someone who's who's nice to acknowledge, but uh, Ella was going to perform an amateur night at the Apollo, and she was going to actually uh, do a dance number, and she just choked up, and so she decided to sing. And uh, and uh, what was the song she sang? Do you remember what it was? Now? Judy. It was Judy. Yeah. That's right, Judy. Um, and um, she blew people away. We have two people in our film uh, who uh, were actually there that night. Uh, the great playwright and actress Gertrude Jeanette and uh, the wonderful dancer Norma Miller, who, again, I was able to become a friend with. And, and they both described the fact that, you know, when Ella first came on, she just looked like a ragmuffin and they were booing her and taunting her. And then she started singing and she blew everyone away. Um, and Bardu Ali was also there. And and he said, you should come meet Chick Webb. Um, and I guess there was like a couple of different times when there was a chance, but Chick was always too busy. Finally, Chick was about to go up to Boston to perform up there. And Bardu Ali got her into uh, his, his, his dressing room. And, uh, you know, he looked at her and she was uh, the story about Ella was she was virtually living on the street. And she apparently she just she didn't know how to dress, but she smelled bad. You know, she just literally hadn't had a shower for for weeks. Uh, and she goes, I don't think so. But they got her to sing. And she said, wow. Um, and said, all right, we'll give you a try. You come up with us, see what you can do, and let's see what happens. And, uh, yeah, and that was the start. Uh, ultimately, uh, not only did Chick take her under his wing uh, and guide her in so many different ways, and she gives wonderful credit to him. You can hear it in the film. Um, but also Chick got his wife, Sally, to help Ella learn how to dress, learn how to do her hair, <laughs> You know, learn, learn how to, you know, to, to, to put on the proper presentation for for being a performer and a world-class person. And Ella, always through her life, gave Chick the credit for not only starting her career, but teaching her how to sustain her career. And let's go ahead and hear uh, Chick and Ella together again. This is Vote for Mr. Rhythm. We'll all be singing of the swing. Now when I say vote for Mr. Rhythm, you all know I mean Chick Webb. That's all my friends I came to state, but now listen to a noble candidate. And that was Ella Fitzgerald with the Chick Webb Orchestra doing Vote for Mr. Rhythm. And I just had to pick that one because the she gives Chick the shout out and, and you have the little drum uh, answer. So it's just a, a classic moment. Of, Isn't that uh, lovely? And I think, uh, you, correct me if I'm wrong, Nate, but I think that Van wrote that song. 
or at least I, be- I believe you're correct. Um, I'll double check that before we we drop the show. And so once he's got Ella Fitzgerald, he recognizes immediately what kind of talent he is, or she is, and and being the savvy business operator that he was, he knew what a charismatic, great lead singer could mean for a band leader and orchestra. How did he reshape his band around Ella, and what kind of success did they enjoy together? Well, yeah, it's controversial because some people feel that. You know, the great, hard-driving, instrumental, mostly instrumental band that Chick had before Ella got sold out for success with Ella. Uh, You have to judge for yourself. You know, every band evolves and changes over time. He can't stay static. Uh, And he was right to realize that Ella had a tremendous talent. He shoved Charles Linton, his male singer, to the side. Thank goodness, because he was he was sort of an insipid singer, um, and uh, oftentimes he'd turn to Ella. So sometimes the wonderful instrumental moments would lead into it and come out of it, and then you hear Ella in the middle. Um, and uh, they, I just have to say, they did dozens and dozens of fabulous songs together. And uh, you know, how could you deny that? Um, and and she really grew over time. Again. Um, you know, she talks about, and Mario Baza, who was sort of an uncle for her in the band, talks about how, you know, Chick was a very driving band leader. And he, and oftentimes she just wanted to go out and, you know, and relax. And he said, no, you got to practice. You got to practice. She was 17, 18 years old. She was so young. Um, and so really he taught her her work ethic um, and taught her about making every note count. Uh, but he also talked, he had this saying that's not original to him, but what he says, Rise slowly and you'll fall, you know, and you, uh, something about how, you know, if you rise the right way, uh, you won't fall later. Um, and when you think about someone like Billy Holiday, um, who had such a short career and Ella, who had such a prolonged career, um, you can give chicks some significant credit for helping Ella know how to grow and sustain her career. And the other great talent who's going to go on to be one of the dominant forces in music in the 40s and 50s that's in Chick's band at this time is a tenor saxophonist and singer named Louis Jordan. Yeah. How did things go south between Chick and Louis, and how is Ella involved in all that? Sure. First of all, Louis is so great. Uh, Louis Jordan, if you don't know rhythm and blues, if you don't know, you know what, a, what a saucy, fabulous entertainer he was. He also did some wonderful duos with Louis Armstrong. Uh, Christmas Time in Harlem, I think they did together and others. Um, He was someone you should discover because you will love Louis uh, Jordan. And he had a great sense of humor in his music as well. Um, um, So uh, uh, he got a job in Chick's band. He was very ambitious himself. Um, I think he was probably having an affair with Ella, whether because he loved Ella or because he saw, you know, that he might be able to uh, persuade her to go off with him. A number of people, including Benny Goodman, had tried to steal Ella from Chick's band. Uh, And uh, so Louis decided he wanted to start his own band. He thought he could coerce Ella to go with him, uh, but Chick found out about it, and Ella, to her credit, stayed with Chick. Um, but that was the you know the breaking point between the two of them. And then Louis went off to have this amazing career himself. I think it was actually uh, Norma Miller, the great dancer, who knew Louis Jordan and well, and knew Ella really well. They used to play cards together and stuff like that, who said that they saw one of Louis Jordan's last, and for a while, Louis Jordan was like enormous. And there were these wonderful music videos. There weren't videos at the time that he did together where he was, you just love them. But at the end of his career, he was kind of forgotten. And she remembers him being uh, in the early 1960s, I think it was, uh, in a club performing. And there was like no one in the club, you know. So that was the arc of his career, you know. Um, yeah, we've, we've had a couple episodes in Louis Jordan. I want to do another one. But yeah, he definitely never. As much as he was a father of rhythm and blues, once rock and roll came along, he never really um, was able to adjust and and was never accepted back into the fold as a as a great jazz man. For whatever reason, jazz becomes this art music after bebop and and modern yeah. jazz. 
and Louis Jordan is seen as outside that when he was, you know, absolutely central to the tradition and and massively influential, a, a great musician, the father of R&B, right up there with Louis Armstrong or Hank Williams or Robert Johnson or James Brown or any other great American musician, and Chick Webb, who I think yeah. um, sits in this company. And another but, you know, guy... Nate, just a, a note on that, if I could, because um, if you think about Louis Armstrong, we look now back on him and say, oh my God, he was so great. He had so many different periods of his career that were independently fabulous. But for much of his career, he was derided as an old timer. You know, that's old music. That's, you know, that, that's not, that doesn't mean anything anymore. And, and for him, a lot of it's only been more recently when music of the fifties or the sixties or his singing has become revered. It wasn't necessarily while he was actually performing. Yeah. I mean, he was definitely, um, kind of a target for the beboppers, um, as you know, inevitably the old, the old lion is taken down, um, by the young lions and, and, it gets knocked. But now that we have some more perspective, I think we can appreciate all these guys, um, despite their internal rivalries and, and, and critical ups and downs. And another figure that's very important, and I think somebody who's kind of forgotten these days, but was massively influential in the 30s and 40s. And one of the things I've sort of discovered in my fascination, uh, and I'm talking about Artie Shaw, the great white oh. swing band leader. And, and he, along with Artie Shaw is really the guy who makes the Great American Songbook the Great American Songbook. He, before that, they were just pop hits, whether it was Cole Porter or the Gershwins. Um, the, you know, the, these songs were just new hit songs that are usually associated with Broadway shows and, and dance bands would do dance arrangements. But it was Artie Shaw who would actually go back and play songs that were five years old, 10 years old, and sort of you know, created this ethos of we're going to play the best songs, not necessarily the newest songs, but the best songs. And that's where people like Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra follow that lead. And that's why you get, you know, this sort of veneration of the great American songbook. But Chick and Artie had this mutual admiration society and Chick was kind of a mentor to him. Can you tell the story of how Chick kind of blessed Artie Shaw's endeavors? Sure. And just to say that yeah, Artie Shaw was, was, uh, quite a cultural figure too you know was he married five times eight times i forget you know to movie stars he was movie star handsome himself um and he played the clarinet you know benny goodman and, and Artie shaw played the clarinet and it's sort of is it an instrument that play anyone plays anymore i don't know but it's a hauntingly beautiful instrument that can do a lot and uh we, we should we should have some hip-hop people who use the clarinet i think it'd be a nice <laughs> merger uh, but uh yeah i mean um Artie was one of those guys who also realized that the great music was happening up in Harlem and up on the edges of of, of uh, mainstream, and and sought that out. And um, you know, and again, it's 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 a wonderful reminder of the uh, merger of 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 white and black musicians and the understanding when it comes down to music that it's the music that counts and and we should you know all the color of your skin stuff is just bs um but uh, that wasn't widely uh felt at the time and sadly it's not so widely felt anymore either um but um but uh already talks about going into this club not knowing who was playing or just hearing music like uh <laughs> like he was like he was hypnotized and coming to this club and, and it was chick behind the drums and he was just mesmerized by how amazing this drummer was in this small club and it was only after Chick got up and, and, and walked across the room that he realized that, again, in his words, it was a hunchback dwarf who was who was playing. He just couldn't believe that was physically possible. Um, and they became great friends. At one point, um, there's a story that sounds a little apocryphal, but it might be true, where they come to each other on the streets of New York City and... Uh, and Betty Goodman said, and was it Chick Webb says, someday, you know, you're going to have the best white band in the world and I'm going to have the best black band in the world. And, you know, we're going to see each other and go, yeah, we made it. Um, you know, it's sad that they have to divide it up that way. But um, that was some of the bond that they had. Yeah, the mutual respect is is the beautiful thing there. And let's hear our last song. This is the, the massive number one hit, A Tisket, A Tasket, with Ella Fitzgerald and the Chick Webb Orchestra. On the way I dropped it, I dropped it, I dropped it, 
And that was a tisket a tasket with Ella Fitzgerald and the Chick Webb Orchestra. And that that song is very meaningful to me. It was my mom's favorite song. She was, I think, 18 in 1945, and that was just an absolute jitterbug in World War II era anthem. And um, it's impossible to overstate how how big that song was at the time. How big a star it made Ella Fitzgerald and Chick Webb. Um, he's not just riding in Ella's wake. He's the band leader. He's um, buying the arrangements and putting it all together and making it all happen. Also, um, Steph checked on Mr. Rhythm and it wasn't written by Van Alexander. It was written um, by uh, lyricist Leo Robin and uh, Ralph Ranger and Al Siegel composed it. So did did Van uh, arrange it? Yes, he did. uh, Van arranged Chick Webb's version. So we always um, have to give kudos to fact checkers. That's an important job. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. And um, I'm going to kind of call you out because you talk about two of the great legendary battles of the bands with uh, Chick Webb and and the Benny Goodman Orchestra. Chick wins, and then Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald versus Count Basie and Billie Holiday, and Chick wins. And that is just immense because. Count Basie at that point in time had the Kansas City Six with Freddie Green and Joe Jones, just this incredibly, incredible, Walter Page on bass, just this incredible, incredible band. And, you know, for Chick to cut him. But the band that beats him is Duke Ellington. You didn't mention that story in the movie. Just wanted to see if you knew a little bit more about that and, and you know, why you left that one out of the film. You know, you can't do everything, you know, and I guess you're telling, trying to tell a story. I mean, I, I, we, I, I, a big part of this movie that you don't see is the years of research that went into it because no one gave, you know, no one cared at all about Chick Webb when we were making the film. Um, and so it was an exciting and hard and, and uh, process to accumulate everything you see in the film. And yeah, I, I knew that. I guess it just didn't fit into the story. Uh, we certainly gave... Uh, Ellington, a lot of credit for uh, the master that he is. I mean, he, he's, you know, America's Beethoven. He's, you know, you, the, the body work is astounding. Uh, but uh, and and Chick actually was in dozens and dozens of battle of bands. Uh, and sometimes there was a dubious result; you weren't sure. Uh, but by all accounts, uh, Ellington did beat Chick, and um, and I don't think Chick would have minded. He loved he loved Ellington. And there's a wonderful letter that we have. I'll send it to you just privately. Um, I don't think it's in the film where um, Ellington wrote a letter on his letterhead to Chick, just praising him at one point. Um, so I think the the bond that those two guys had was very special. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, Duke Ellington did everybody a favor when he introduced Chick to the to the business of band leading. But tell us a little bit about, you know, once Chick and Ella have this kind of success, then they hit the road in a big way. What was it like for African-American performers to tour the South in the 1930s? Yeah, we have this one sequence in the film, uh, Nate, as you saw, where we do this animated map where we show – um, every stop that Chick took in 1938 with music in the background. Uh, and uh, it's just endless. And if you think about, you know, being on a crappy bus and staying at segregated motels or not being able to stay at a motel at all um, and not being able to buy food at a market because you're black. Uh, and, and then, you know, it's just it's and then also being sick like chick it's just an incredibly grueling lifestyle and we have a number of uh, people um in the film including dizzy gillespie um and the great drummer roy haynes uh talk about what it was like to tour in the south and it, it was brutal so you could be um a huge star on the radio sell you know thousands of records draw hundreds of people to a club to watch you perform but you couldn't stay at a motel you couldn't go into a restaurant. You couldn't go to the supermarket and buy food. Oftentimes, if a, if a black band had uh, a member that was lighter skin and could pass, uh, they would be the person who would go into a supermarket, nervous that they would get busted, buy a bunch of sandwiches and drinks, and bring it back to the band because the band wasn't allowed to go in there. So, you know, uh, and then oftentimes um, 
they the, the venues themselves would be segregated. So either the black patrons would have to go upstairs and not be able to dance, but sit, but pay the same price, or um, they literally would would tie a rope down the middle of a dance floor, and the blacks would be on one smaller side, and the whites would be on one larger side with a rope down the center. Even though it's a black band paying, and the white owner of the of the venue is making a lot of money. Man, um, yeah, grim, grim times. But tell us about Chick's final illness, his passing in Baltimore, and his funeral. Sure. Um, again, we were able to talk to a couple of people who were actually at the funeral. Um, and, um, you know, Chick just played until he dropped. Uh, he was either 30 years old. By some accounts, maybe he was 34 years old. That's a little bit amorphous, but very, very young. Um, and there were story, there were stories again at the end where you know, he'd be drumming and then he would just fall out of the um, off the drums, or he'd stumble away when no one could see him and he'd pass out. You know, he'd be just pouring blood. And he went finally. He just said, "Okay, I, I have to." In the middle of a tour, he went off to Johns Hopkins Hospital, uh, which is ironically where he was born, and he had some tests. Uh, I think they thought he had this thing called Potts disease, um, and then he tried to play again um, and couldn't, and finally had to go back into the hospital. And on June 16th, 1939, um, uh, he was in the hospital. His friends came to visit him. Um, his wife, Sally, was there, and he said, I'm sorry, I've got to go, and he died. Um, he was born. He was buried uh, in Artibus Memorial Park uh, in Maryland, near Baltimore. In those days, again, in those days, black people and white people couldn't be buried together. There was actually a rule that had the distance that their bodies had to be from each other. And so he was in a segregated uh, memorial park. Um, if we have, I tell you this story. I told this to someone once, and they thought I was just lying, but it's absolutely true. I went to film at uh, Chick's gravesite with a couple of his nephews, uh, and um, we're there looking at his grave, uh, and um, they put flowers on it. And, you know, it was very haunting to be there. A beautiful, strange place. I had a rental car. I was listening to jazz on the way there, um, and then I parked my car nearby. After I said goodbye to them, I put my gear back in the car, turned on the radio, turned on the car, the radio came on, and it was a vocal version of uh, Stompin' the Savoy that came on. Uh, with Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald singing lyrics that had been added later. I'd never actually heard that version of the song before. And in that song, Louis Armstrong has this moment where he goes, remember Chick Webb? Uh, and it was, you know, it was almost like a ghost uh, speaking to me. It was an amazing yeah, that's moment. Some heavy synchronicity. But tell us about his funeral real quick. Sure. Uh, thousands of people uh, on the street, thousands of people uh, in the church uh, that uh, in which he went to as a kid and, and, and with the memorial service. Um, people uh, and uh, uh, Reverend uh, Wilson, who was there as a boy, his father knew him as a friend uh, we had a chance to interview and who was a minister at that church uh, later on. But as a boy, he was there. And he said that uh, that in the middle of the funeral with thousands of people on the street, all of a sudden poured, started poor rain and everyone got completely soaked but no one moved and then he said during the sermon all of a sudden a rainbow came out and it was just like it was as if uh chick was invited into heaven and, and at the service uh you know joe lewis was there uh gene krupa was there uh ella fitzgerald was there ella sang uh sang uh you know my buddy voice yeah my buddy which is a beautiful haunting perfect song her voice cracked halfway through and um and, uh, you know, the moment lives on because we know about it now. Yeah, and it's uh, just one of many great stories in the movie The Savoy King, Chick Webb, and the music that changed America. My guest has been Jeff Coffin. Jeff, where can people see the movie? Uh, well, um, they can order uh, DVDs from us on our website. Uh, you know, our company is called Floating World Pictures. But if you go to www the Savoy King documentary.com. It'll send you right there. Um, and, uh, and we have this thing where if you get a DVD, there's also this uh, illustrated ebook with all these sort of old posts. Did I send that to you, Nate? If I didn't. Know. Yeah, you did. It's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So you can get the, you can get the book too. And, and so I love that sort of thing. You can look at the old posters and the old ads and uh, it's all there in your hands. Well, Jeff, and, thank I, you I, so much. Say, Nate, yeah. I've loved this. I love what you're doing. Uh, and I, I really appreciate uh, your listeners as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. And thanks for yeah keeping this story alive. It's just a beautiful movie. I'm not ashamed to admit I cried at least four times in this film. Just 
it's great to read about somebody or to learn about somebody that that's a good guy that suffered a lot, but as you know, there's no chick doing people wrong in the story. It's just absolutely inspiring, beautiful stuff. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you. Take care. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Lance Scott Walker to discuss Houston's DJ Screw. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.